So we're in Ezekiel 29 and 30 tonight. And as we dive into Ezekiel 29 and 30, we're in the final part of Ezekiel's Oracle to the Nations. Oh, man. So what that means is every single prophet has an oracle to the nation. Some are longer, some are shorter. But the emphasis of the oracle of the nations is the prophet declaring that God is going to redeem and restore the nations. So now, as we, as we work our way through the story in the word of God, we have the fall of man, Genesis 3, right? You guys track him? Man falls. Genesis 6, man's corrupted. Genesis 11, man rebels against God. And so the Lord declares in Deuteronomy 32 that he's turning over the, the geographical area of the world. He's giving that over to the divine council, angels that sit on the divine council. Now, those angels fell, and those fallen angels become the source for the false gods and deities that the nations are worshiping. That's why in Psalm 82, the Lord says he's going to judge them. He's going to hold all of those divine, the divine rebellion, he's going to hold them just as responsible as he's going to hold man's rebellion. So when we look at the fall, sometimes we forget that there was a heavenly fall as well, right? We, we know that guy's name, no? And we know that he has brought with him uh, a third of the angelic host. So there's a large number that God is, as God brings judgment on the nations, it's a declaration that I have not surrendered you eternally. In fact, when we read the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, everybody knows the book of Revelation? We read the book of Revelation, we, we see a, a glimpse of God redeeming the nations. Every prophet has a glimpse of God redeeming the nations. And so in, in Revelation, you have John hearing that there are 144,000 sealed for the day of the Lord. And he turns and he looks and he sees a number that cannot be numbered from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Those represent all of those redeemed from all the nations. Now, Genesis 12, God calls forth Abraham and he starts uh, with his own peculiar people to be a light to the Gentile, to the world. So that the world through that light would be able to come to faith. And that light is going to grow, not just be part of the nation of Israel and their experiences in the world, but from that nation is going to spring forth the seed of Abraham. Do we know who the seed of Abraham is? Genesis 3.16, the seed of a woman. Do we know who that is? That's all the Messiah. That's all Jesus Christ who comes, who, who is crucified on the cross, buried, rises the third day, ascends to the Father, and the Father looks at his Son and the work that he has accomplished, and he says, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool and now progressing from that point even into our day is the work of God bringing forth the that redemption that Christ wrought on the cross into the world to the nations redeeming that number that John looked at and couldn't count 
people who are going to come to faith, the restoration of that which was lost as a result of the fall of man and as a result of the fall of Satan and will all be restored in Christ. And so Christ will one day take the redeemed, all those who have come to him through faith, and he's going to lay them out before the Father. He's going to give them to the Father, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. So when the prophets talk about the nations, oftentimes we look at this and all we see is judgment. So you're missing the boat if that's all you see. If all you see is God saying, I'm going to wipe you out, I'm going to burn you, there's not going to be anything left. I, maybe I'm going to surprise you a little bit tonight. When God does that, that's God's grace. Because if it wasn't God's grace, there'd be nobody left. It, God's grace means that there are, there are events that occur both in the world, among nations, and with us individually that are calls from the Lord to repent. You remember as we go through the six seals or seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, what's the goal of all those? The destruction of men? No, the goal of all those is repentance, that men would repent. Men would repent. So when we come to the oracle of the nations in the prophets, it's God's voice through the prophet calling the nations to repentance. Repentance. And so we're going to see the last uh, four chapters. We'll look at two tonight, 29 and 30, or somewhere thereabouts. And then 31 and 32 next time. All deal with Egypt. This is the last of the oracles to the nations. So if you remember, if you were with us, he talked about the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites. Those are all cousins of the Jews, right? Lot's kids and Esau. So those are all relatives. Then you have the Philistines, Tyre, Sidon, and the last one is Egypt. Now these seven, we often ask questions, right? I want you to think with me prophetically. When we come to the book of Revelation, we have seven letters to seven churches. Why is that? Is there only seven churches? So what do you think that seven, those seven churches represent? Everybody, right? You want to take a wild guess on what the seven oracles to the nations represent? God calling the nations. God calling the nations. Calling the nations to repentance. Sit here until I make your enemies your footstool, right? To see, to see them surrender Lives surrendered to Christ. Well, let's take a look at it. It's going to begin with the oracle to Egypt in Ezekiel 29, verse 1. In the 10th year, the 10th month, the 12th day of the month, so we know when it happened, the word of the Lord came to me. So this is seven months prior to the fall of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's going to fall within seven months. Seven months from when Ezekiel gives this prophecy, the refugee, the last refugee from Jerusalem is going to come. And with the announcement that, hey, Jerusalem has fallen. Which, if you remember, will be the end of Ezekiel being mute. You remember God striking him as a mute? The Lord said, you're not going to be able to say whatever you want to say. He said, the only thing you're going to be able to say, Ezekiel, is what I tell you to say. Which would be handy. If God would do that to me, I'd stay out of a lot of trouble. Right? Ezekiel would walk around in the refugee camp and people would ask him questions. He'd just look at him. 
Can't talk unless the Lord gives me something to say. And we'll see it in Ezekiel 33. God <coughs> is going to loose, loosen his lips. So, 10th year, 10th month, 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams that says, my Nile is my own, I made it for myself. Now, just like in chapter 28, you remember we had a prophecy to the, to the king of Tyre, and we also see the Lord speaking judgment to, if you will, the power behind the throne. The, the, we, we have our clues or the hints to the fall of Satan in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Those prophecies show us a bit of the fall of the divine being in uh, back at the Garden of Eden. And so you have the same thing here. Now, some Bibles are going to say this is a crocodile. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know. This is going to sound crazy, so just bear with me. Or, or don't. Whichever, whichever you want to do. Um, the word is tanim, and tanim is, is interpreted as about 100 different animals. I'm going to save you the hassle of trying to figure out what tanim is. Okay, tanim is not the word for all the dinosaurs. Tanim is the word for Leviathan. Leviathan carries with it a wide array of imagery. Leviathan is a symbol. Okay, doesn't matter if there ever really was a Leviathan or not. None of that matters. What matters is how did the people understand it? The people understood Leviathan, that serpent from of old, that great dragon. Oh, you've heard all this before, right? The people understood that as the, the word that defines the forces in opposition to Yahweh. So whatever forces in opposition, mythologically, they would write a story. If they wrote a story about God fighting the, the forces of evil, it would be God's battle with Leviathan. So I want you to, there's this, there's, I, there's this the thing where we get so super literal that we are not able to read uh, apocalyptic or poetic literature anymore. Because we are looking for missiles and, and, you know, helicopters and crazy things. Instead of saying, what, what was it? When they wrote this, when John wrote this, you know, the people, when John wrote Revelation, you know, the people who received it understood what he wrote. They weren't all going, what in the world is he talking about? No, we do that 2,000 years later because we try to plug in, you know, our, a modern day, you know, helicopters and missiles into whatever John's seeing. So let's let's try not to do that. And let's just try to understand what is the Bible talking about. So there is a dictionary called the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. It's one of a library of about 10 million books that I have. And I want to share a little bit from it. I'm going to read some uh, a couple of paragraphs out of it that to help you understand imagery 
biblical imagery. When we talk about the great dragon, we talk about the sea. You guys have heard me say the sea is a symbol for chaos. Where do the beasts come in Revelation? Where do they come out of? They come out of the sea. Oh, and what was chaos? We just talked about Leviathan being a symbol or the forces that are against who? The forces that are against God, forces against Yahweh. So this is a picture. Where do they come out of? They come up out of the sea. So I just want to, uh, uh, if anybody wants more info on it, we can. I'll give it to you later. I don't have enough time to do too much. But I want to read this excerpt to try to help us understand a little bit about Leviathan, the symbolism, and the sea. Uh, so we're going to talk about the cosmic sea. The cosmic sea also symbolizes a continued threat the forces of chaos pose against God and creation. The sea pushes against the boundaries God established for it. Job 38, Jeremiah 5. The Bible adapts its neighbor's creation myths of a primeval battle between creator God and a sea monster of chaos called Leviathan, Rahab, or the dragon or serpent. Job 41. Unlike the myths of neighboring nations, God created the chaos monster and he placed it in the sea. That's according to Genesis 1 and Psalm 104. The monster stirs the cosmic sea, but is wounded and subdued by God. Job 26, Psalm 74, 89, Isaiah 51. And he will ultimately be vanquished in the end of days. So the point when we look at some of this imagery is to understand what is being communicated. Are there forces of chaos? Yes. Are they equal to God? No. Were they created by God? Yes. Did God make Satan? Yeah, God created Satan. Is Satan greater than God? No, Satan's not greater than God. Will there be a day when the Lord will judge Satan? Yes, there will be a day when the Lord will judge Satan. What about all the nations in rebellion against God? Will there be a day when God judges all those nations? Yes, there will be a day. As creator, God controls the sea, both producing and calming its waves. We've seen that in scripture, haven't we? Keeping it within its boundaries. He can dry up the sea at will or unleash it to judge the world as in the flood. Thus the threat of chaos and evil which the sea symbolizes is ultimately hollow. The parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh is a reenactment of God's control over the forces in opposition to him. The same authority is symbolized by Jesus walking on the water, by Jesus saying to the water, peace, be still. Even the beast of revelation, which arises out of the sea, is ultimately subdued and cast into the sea or the lake of fire. When we come to the throne room of God, we see something like a sea of glass, which is called the cosmic sea. The calmness of the sea symbolizes the end of evil. There's no chaos in heaven. There's no monster in heaven. The monster of chaos is not there. At the consummation, the day of the Lord, at the end of all these things, we see the end of all wicked, evil, chaos, all those forces that are arrayed now against creation are all ultimately subdued by Christ. And so when we look here, 
He's saying you are this dragon, this Leviathan. You are a force of chaos, those in opposition to God. He's talking to Pharaoh, real person. You are in opposition to the things that I do. He would call himself, Pharaoh would call himself self-created. This is my Nile. I made it. So he's proclaiming himself as deity, as God. And as he makes these proclamations, the Lord brings judgment. In verse 4, he says, I will put hook in your jaws. Now this is like the great, the fisherman, right? How do you catch Leviathan? The sea monster. Well, God does it by putting a hook in his jaw and dragging him wherever he wants him to go. You're going to see this phrase over and over again prophetically. He says, I'll put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. So he's pulling out the sea monster, but all the other fish stick to him. So the judgment is not just on Pharaoh. It is on Pharaoh and all his people. All the nation, the whole part, all of the fish are going to stick to this Leviathan. And I will cast you into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams, and you will fall in the open field and not be brought together or gathered to the beasts of the earth, to the birds of the heaven. I will give you as food. This is ultimately a judgment of Leviathan. When Leviathan is finished, there's a great feast. You've heard this before. When you come to the battle of Armageddon, the Lord says, call all the birds to what? The feast of the great God. So you're going to eat the flesh of kings and of mighty men and of horses. And he's saying all the wicked that have been slaughtered are given for food. The point that imagery is carrying the imagery that there's a day when all wickedness is is put down once and for all. There's not a, a, a part two. There's no sequel. It is finished. And this is what the Lord is laying out. <clears throat> he's showing us behind the scenes of God's judgment on Egypt. He's showing us pictures of God's ultimate redemption of all of creation. The judgment of all the earth. Will all the earth be judged? You've read Revelation, right? Revelation chapter 20, what happens? The grave and the sea. Oh, there's the sea again. They give up their dead and they are judged before a great white throne. Right? So you have these, these things. This is not just in Revelation. This imagery is carried all the way through all the prophets. So he says, all the inhabitants of Egypt will know I am the Lord. Because all the false deities that they worship. So let's just grant my assertion that those false deities have their source in fallen angels. Now when they look to those fallen angels to deliver them from Yahweh, can they do it? No. No. Just like Yahweh saying, I'm going to grab Leviathan by hooks and throw him up on the shore so the animals can have a feast. Those divine beings that were created by Yahweh, they're not equals to him. They're not, they can't stand not one moment. Not one moment. And so when the, when the scripture says, then they will all know, I am the Lord, because there's no one else that can deliver them. And the point of that judgment 
is for men to lift their eyes to heaven and call for his name. To call on the name of the Lord. Now he says, all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord. Because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins shake. So the issue here, part of the judgment that the Lord is bringing to Egypt is this promise to help, but the deliverance of injury. You said you were going to help us, but when Israel leaned on you, you weren't able to help them, and they were injured more as a result of them leaning on you. And the Lord says, hey, this is a promise of help, but you were the cause of injury, and that's part of the judgment. You were a reed. They reached for you for help. Can you imagine, like, that you're in quicksand, and you're just about to go under that last little bit, and you reach up and grab a reed. I know because I'm an unlucky person that whatever reed I grabbed is already half eaten through anyway. And as soon as I pull, there'll be a little tug where I just come up a little bit and then snap is not going to hold me. Or if you were, if you're running and you stumble and fall and reach out and have a reed, will a reed hold you up? So the point is, Hey, this was the pain that Egypt caused Israel. And so as a result, they are entering into the ruin of their own land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will bring a sword upon you and I will cut off from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt will be a desolation and a waste and they will know I am the Lord. If you see in each one of these God's judgment that would lead men to either repent or continue their rebellion, just like in Revelation. The Lord will say over and over again in Revelation, and still they would not repent. So now we know some do, right? Because when John looks at the fruit of the 144,000, he sees souls that are saved that can't be numbered, right? So some are responding. But we also see that some are denying repentance. And so here, that they will know that I am the Lord. They will know, because you said the Nile is mine, I made it. Therefore, behold, I'm against you, and I'm against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation from Migdal, which, by the way, is where the Red Sea is. Uh, Migdal and Pahirath, that's where the children of Israel crossed. From Migdal to Cyrene, as far as the border of Cush, no foot of man will pass through it, no foot of beast will pass through it. It will be uninhabited for 40 years, and I will make... The land of Egypt, the desolation, the midst of the desolated countries. Her cities will be a desolation 40 years among the cities that are laid waste. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the country. So as this judgment is being brought, there's a couple of symbols uh, that still cause people questions. The 40 years desolation doesn't, hasn't happened. But is that what we, we, want to, uh, we want to continue to study and look to try to see what is it that the Lord is telling us? Would there be 40 years of desolation? Perhaps. But there has been, once, Israel, or once Egypt faced this judgment, they were never a power again. 
So their, their days were over. Today you go to Egypt as a third world country. So you, you go in, it's not, once upon a time, kings of the world, right? Once upon a time, but, but now no longer. And if, if there is some symbolism to the concept of 40 years, we see 40 years come up often in scripture for 40 years, 40 years. And so um, trying people, there's no consensus, I guess I'm trying to say, as to if there is a symbolic meaning that is a part of that, or if that's something that's yet to come, we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to Ezekiel chapter 38. But the idea ultimately still is, look behind, God is going to redeem the nations, he's going to pull the redeemed from the nations, and he'll judge the wicked. So there will be still, there is still more judgment, right? We've all read Revelation. So there's still a day of the, a day of the Lord that is coming. Verse 13, for thus says the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the people among whom they were scattered and restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Pathros, the land of their origin, and, and they shall be a lowly kingdom. So they are a lowly kingdom. They have been a lowly kingdom ever since. <clears throat> and it shall be uh, most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations. Right? So... Nobody's worried about Egypt taking over the world today. And I will make them so small they will never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel. The point is, Israel's never going to reach out to help from Egypt. Now when we come into the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period is that period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Daniel gave a prophecy about four kingdoms that were going to come into existence before Messiah came. That Messiah would come during the fourth kingdom. The first kingdom that, that we look at was Babylon. Second kingdom, Medo-Persian. Third kingdom, Greece. Fourth kingdom, Rome. When was Jesus born? During the reign of who? During the reign of Rome. So just like Daniel said, Messiah came during the fourth kingdom. And so when we look at these things, we, we see in the intertestamental period, Israel comes back and, and they're a bit of a floundering nation. They're not very powerful. And during the Greek empire, when the Greek empire is divided into four parts, one of the leaders of the four parts his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. You guys heard of him before? He's, an, he's a type of the Antichrist, the, a world leader who's in opposition to God's people. He's going to burn the temple, sacrifice a pig on the, on the altar. He's going to stand there and declare himself God. He does everything that uh, Scripture talked about that the Antichrist would do. When he's come, every time he passes by Jerusalem... He usually wants to take out his frustrations on why he can't conquer anybody else. So he would conquer Jerusalem over and over and over again. You have the Maccabean revolt. Uh, if you've heard of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, they are apocryphal literature that talk about the Maccabean revolt that was during that time period. So Israel is reaching out for help. This is a long story. It has a point. 
Israel is reaching out to point, reaching, reaching out for help at this point. And they call a small nation at the time called Rome. And so Rome is their new Egypt. They never reach out to Egypt again. They never go, Egypt, save us. Now they go, Rome, save us. And at the time of Christ, were they saying that anymore? No, they didn't want saved by Rome. They wanted delivered from Rome. One of the things we see as we look historically at the issues that happen in Israel is Israel's tendency to reach out to help from anywhere but God. So there's probably a lesson there, if you think. <clears throat> we want to reach out to help from the Lord. So he is saying, then they will know that I am the Lord God. No more will Israel reach out to them for reliance. Now, in verse 17, in the 27th year, the first month, first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Here's how he's going to describe it. Every head was made bald and every shoulder rubbed bare. So here's, here's what that means. Nebuchadnezzar, in his siege against Tyre, that siege lasted 13 years. So the, the, this statement is a statement of what happens to a soldier when he's in the field carrying siege works all day long, so his shoulders are rubbed raw, pushing siege works back and forth, and Tyre was no simple battle, and wearing a helmet for 13 years. What happened to him? They got bald, and they had sore shoulders. 13 years Babylon was against Tyre. Now, when that finally is over, they're a little irritated. Can you imagine such a thing? Every shoulder rubbed bare, yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will give the land of Egypt to him. So they're going to make a treaty with Tyre. We talked about it last time. They make a treaty with Tyre. Tyre, they, they basically tax Tyre to death. And it's not until Alexander comes in the Greek uh, empire that we see the fall of Tyre. But when they go to look for money, they're going to go. Now, you guys know Egypt had money, right? You ever seen the, the um, riches of, what do they call King Tut? Tutankhamun? Was there a lot of gold there? Is anybody going to Egypt now just finding gold everywhere? So, so the Lord is saying here, look, Nebuchadnezzar is not going to get anything for his effort from tires. No immediate gratification. And that is God's design. Now Nebuchadnezzar is going to turn his eyes toward Egypt and he's going to take all her plunder. Everything he can find, he's going to take. And whatever he didn't take, the the tomb robbers took later on when they came through but there is today no wealth that we see there in the land of Egypt therefore um, thus says the Lord God I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and he will carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it and it shall be the wages for his army 
So for 13 years uh, against Tyre, he doesn't get much, but he'll get a bunch when he goes to Egypt. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored because they worked for me. Now, if you ask Nebuchadnezzar, he may not have agreed. But the Lord says, look, they're accomplishing my work. Daniel says, who raises up kings? Who brings them down? Ultimately, who's in charge? Yeah, the Lord is in charge. He's, he has not relinquished authority. Now, do we always understand what he's doing? No. He may be judging you. He may be judging me. I guarantee he's judging this nation because if he's not, and there's more judgment coming, I can't imagine how bad it's going to get. For we are a wicked and rebellious people who deserve God's judgment. Our nation. But as a believer, do you have to worry about the wrath of God? For we have not been appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You never have to be afraid of God's wrath. That doesn't mean that you'll always have food. It doesn't mean that the nation you're in won't experience it. It just means you won't. Because Jesus Christ has redeemed you. He has redeemed me. So in Ezekiel 29, verse 21, it says, So on that day I will cause a horn to spring, out, spring up for the house of Israel and open your lips among them, and they will know I am the Lord. So on that day, listen, I'm going to cause a horn to spring up from Israel. Now, a horn symbolically is, is a symbol for power. He's going to raise up some sort of power in Israel. So it, it's kind of twofold. One, there's going to be people who come back to Israel. Israel is not wiped off the, off the map. There, there's people coming back. And there will also be a seed of David that comes back. Who comes through the seed of David? Jesus does. Who's the horn God's raising up? The one mighty to save? That's Jesus. This prophetically is speaking of the one who would come to redeem the people from their sin. He will come from the house of Israel. And he says, on that day, on that day when all this is starting, right, which begins with the fall of Jerusalem, what did God say he's going to do to Ezekiel? I will open your lips. He's going to give him the freedom to speak more freely. <laughs> because I guess at this point he has learned how to say things that glorify God. So the Lord will loosen his lips and he will continue to prophesy now here's the awesome thing once we get to verse 33 32 is the end of judgment <clears throat> 33 the fall of jerusalem then we start seeing from 34 to 48 all the promises of god and the restoration of the land as god redeems the world so you have scripture that talks about god's judgment of the world right because man has to know he needs a savior but then you have scripture that details God's redemption. So you don't have to go to hell. Nobody has to go there. 
So we, you, you have, you have call out on the name of the Lord. Call upon his name. Seek him and, and allow God to, you know, God, grant unto me redemption. Grant unto me salvation. Lift your eyes up to the Lord. Lift your eyes up and see where your help comes from. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that is part of what is being illustrated for us as we continue to work our way through Ezekiel. Did anybody notice I didn't get two chapters done? So we, we'll, we'll still have 30. Don't worry, it's not going anywhere. <clears throat> we'll work our way through it. Why don't you stand with me? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the truth of your prophetic vision. Uh, God, ultimately, I thank you for the grace of judgment. That you will not allow man to pursue headlong into ultimate and complete destruction without judgment first without reaching down in grace. As we look at the sealed judgments, we see, Lord, your, your wrath, your judgment falling before the end in a call to those who are lost to turn to you. And then you will know I am the Lord, mighty to save. God, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would open our eyes, help us to become students of your word, wanting to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, depth, width, and breadth, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to grow daily in our understanding of you. And God, as we look into a future that is unsure, Lord, and we see the signs of judgment, are all around us. God, I pray that our nation would be quick to call upon the name of the Lord, that we might be like Nineveh, who would put on sackcloth and ashes and repent, and that God would grant mercy and grace. Lord, we pray that you, Lord, would help us, God, as we desire to be your hands and feet in this season, God, may we speak the words that you're asking us to speak. May we do the things you are asking us to do. And in and through it all, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, God, that you would be magnified, that your name would be lifted on high. We give you praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.